Welcome to the Quad Pod, the Regis University Magazine podcast. In this episode, we share stories from our latest issue, Spring and Summer 2021. You'll hear our cover story, Set Up to Win, a look inside the Porter Billups Leadership Academy as they celebrate 25 years of helping at-risk youth. In these stories, a Regis researcher and a tiny particle upend the laws of physics. How an ambitious priest and athletic trash talk helps turn Sacred Heart College into Regis College. A volunteer tree whisperer who helps bring diverse species to Regis's Arboretum. How an alumnus's vision and drive have brought decades of healthcare to those in need. And we'll end with words of wisdom from our favorite fox, Reggie, the Regis mascot. Ahead of the game, the Porter Billups Leadership Academy celebrates a quarter century of giving at-risk kids a game plan for success. Story written and read by Sarah Knuth. At an NCAA men's basketball rules-making meeting in his hometown of Indianapolis several years ago, Lonnie Porter became lost in thought. Looking out the window, he could almost see it. A boy in an alley shooting a basketball through a makeshift hoop cobbled together with an old fruit crate attached to a shed. Porter grew up poor, but he had a support system of teachers who believed in him. In seventh grade, they even encouraged him to run for student body president. As often as he could, he'd head over to the alley to set up his hoop. He didn't know that he'd grow up to not only coach university-level basketball, but also to mentor kids growing up in circumstances like his. But here he was, years later, representing Regis alongside some of the biggest basketball universities in the nation, making roles for the game just blocks from where he'd played crate basketball. As he looked toward the alley, picturing that boy, the rules discussion went on around him. Lonnie, what do you think of that? The question snapped Porter back to the moment on the verge of tears. Porter's legendary career as Regis University head men's basketball coach landed him in the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. But that's only half of his Regis story. For 25 years, Porter has mentored, educated, and improved the lives of at-risk Denver kids. This year, as the Porter Billups Leadership Academy, PBLA, celebrates a quarter century of helping kids grow to become doctors, teachers, nurses, and leaders, the Academy is looking ahead to its next 25 years of making a difference. Porter founded the Lauder Porter Leadership Academy in 1996, and in 2006, NBA and University of Colorado legend Chauncey Billups joined as co-executive director, ushering in an era of growth. Each summer, PBLA welcomes more than 200 at-risk kids in 4th through 12th grade to the Regis campus. With the help of Porter's daughter, educator, Regis graduate and co-founder Stacy Porter-Bentley, the Academy developed a curriculum tailored to each grade level. Over three weeks, students participate in learning experiences, including a class about Jackie Robinson's leadership for fourth graders, human rights discussions in seventh grade, and a course about transitioning into high school for incoming ninth graders. For high schoolers, the academy provides year-round academic support by working with a teacher who acts as a personal college counselor. All of this comes free for students. The academy is funded by private contributions and the university. Each year, teachers, counselors, and principals nominate elementary school students for a spot in the academy. Nominees must demonstrate leadership and academic skills, positive behavior, parental involvement, and community service. Running the academy is not how Porter envisioned his Regis career. He said, I thought my mission was to come here and play a bunch of basketball games and take life as it came to me. And then, in 1995, something happened. He remembers the day clearly. Walking across campus, then-Vice President for Student Life, Tom Reynolds asked Porter, Coach, have you ever thought about an academic camp? The answer was yes. If he hadn't become a basketball coach, Porter might have become a headmaster. 
He said, I wanted to run a whole program from the time they were little shorties, little kids, until they graduated. Reynolds said, why so young, coach? And I said, you can mold them. You can get your hands on them and shape them into someone who has purpose. Forming the academy, Porter thought about kids in inner-city Denver growing up a lot like he did, poor and at risk of dropping out of high school. Like the kid who shot hoops in the alley, they needed someone to make a difference for them. Unlimited grilled cheese now, life lessons later. Stepping onto the Regis University campus as fourth graders, Dominic Newton and Monique Gonzalez weren't exactly thinking about college. At the time, I'm nine, I don't think about the future, Newton said. I just want to know what's for dinner tonight. The daughter of a single mom, Newton said she grew up going to, quote, not the worst schools, but not the best schools. Just the situations I was in, sometimes the future can become a little dim, end quote. What Gonzalez remembers most from her early days at the academy are the unlimited grilled cheese sandwich offered at the cafeteria and racing to be the first onto the PBLA vans that took the students to and from the academy. Whoever got on first was allowed to choose the music. Like Newton, she wasn't yet thinking about college when she first attended PBLA. But, Gonzalez said, being on this college campus and getting this different kind of experience, going through all these different buildings, walking around, it seemed like a dream. Years later, the women better appreciate the magnitude of their experiences. Now a charge nurse at Denver Health, Newton leads a team through their workday, lately caring for COVID-19 patients and administering vaccines. The thought comes up now and then, would she be there without PBLA? Newton said, the answer is probably not as easily as I'm doing it now. The program took kids, she said, who didn't see themselves of having a future and showed a lot of us what we do and how we can do it and how we can do it well, Newton said. That gave us a lot of self-worth. Because she successfully completed the program, Newton earned a full scholarship to Regis, where she earned a nursing degree. For students like Newton who meet the criteria and Regis admissions requirements, college becomes a real possibility. PBLA awards a minimum of $5,000 to all eligible candidates per year. More funding is available to students with unmet financial needs. PBLA has prepared Newton for higher education. She said, for me, just having that experience, I felt already ahead of the game. I've been on a college campus before, and I feel a bit ahead of it. Gonzalez considered going to college out of state, but ultimately she was recruited to play softball at Regis. It was a blessing in disguise, she said. College was a huge transition, more so than I thought it would be. It was a huge transition that being someplace familiar was more helpful than I ever thought it would be. She went on to attend pharmacy school at Regis and now works as a clinical pharmacist at Lutheran Medical Center in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Now, Gonzalez's memory of PBLA stretch far beyond grilled cheese sandwiches. The biggest thing that carries through is what leadership is, she said. Leadership is standing up when you feel at odds, or maybe you're scared, or maybe you're not sure this is the right thing to do. That is a skill I developed when I was really small. The Academy generates story after story like this. And for Porter and Billups, that's the point. Co-executive director Chauncey Billups said, What I love about our Academy is that most of our kids aren't set up to win at all. They're dealing with a lot of different adversity at home and some really tough circumstances. So when they go off and win, that win feels a lot better. PBLA gives underprivileged kids a shot, and its founders know what it's like to need one. A pivotal partnership. Before he became most valuable player in the 2004 NBA Finals, and before he earned the nickname Mr. Big Shot, Chauncey Billups was growing up in Denver's Park Hill neighborhood, a much different place than it is today. He said, when I grew up there, it was mostly black. There were a lot of gangs, a lot of drugs, a lot of crime every single day in the neighborhood. It was tough. 
Phillips was fortunate. Both of his parents worked and his home life was stable. He saw what life was like for the other kids in his neighborhood though. He said, most of my other cousins and my friends and people that I grew up with weren't so lucky. So I connect with these kids in a way that is beautiful. I know the trials and tribulations and the struggles that they all are seeing and that they go through, be it family or pressures of the neighborhood. I've seen it all. Phillips was nine years old the first time he met Lonnie Porter. He was this magnetic personality, a pillar in the African-American community, Phillips said. I used to hear so many stories about this great coach, but not only that, this great man that was really raising so many inner city kids that were hopeless. He was a father figure to so many people. As Billups made a name for himself in basketball, he occasionally connected with Porter. Their friendship strengthened when Billups moved into Porter's South Denver neighborhood. Along with one other neighbor, Porter and Billups were the only minorities there. Our relationship took off from there, and that's when I learned about the Leadership Academy, he said. I was, at the time, starting my NBA career, and I knew I wanted something like that. I wanted to be able to give back and give hope and help to so many inner-city kids, at-risk youth, no matter if they were black, brown, white, Asian. I didn't care about that. If you were disadvantaged and it was a long shot for you to make it, I wanted to be the person you could look to to help. For students, getting to know Billups went past the thrill of meeting a celebrity. What struck us is how much he actually cared about us, Gonzalez said. It's different when you're a kid and maybe you go to a Denver Nuggets game and get an autograph or something. He cared about us, and that was just a different feeling. He took time out of his busy life to come hang out with us, come sit in our classes, and come teach us some stuff. Phillips remembers the impact visits like that had on him as a kid spending time at the Neighborhood Recreation Center. And there were so many older males, black males, black females, that raised me there, he said. When I leave the house, I'm in the belly of the beast a lot of times being in the neighborhood. But there were certain times during the year that a Denver Nugget or a Denver Bronco would go do community events. I never forgot how that made me feel to see a guy like that take time out of his day to come spend time with inner-city at-risk youth. At PBLA, the connection is even deeper. He said, that's one of the things I love about it. I can connect to kids. It's not just a surface relationship. We can kind of go deep and talk about what's really going on. A lasting impact years later. For Dominique Newton and Monique Gonzalez, the PBLA connections have remained strong. At Newton's wedding, fellow graduates Josie Nolasco and Mariah Abram were bridesmaids. On her graduation day, Gonzalez expected to cross the stage and collect her degree from university administration, just like every other graduate. As she accepted her diploma, though, she looked up to see Porter smiling back at her. She said, I formed that relationship with him through the years, knowing him when I was 10 to finishing pharmacy school at 25. Knowing him for that long, and him being the one to show up yet again and give me my degree, was just, I don't even know how to describe it. It was so special. Watching me grow from when I was being so small to doing what I love and getting my degree, it was unimaginable. A change of heart. How an ambitious priest and athletic trash talk helped Regis become Regis. Story by Todd Cohen, read by Marcus Knodel. How Regis lost its sacred heart, but got its name. A common misconception is that the College of the Sacred Heart became Regis College 100 years ago to avoid the wrath of the anti-Catholic Ku Klux Klan, a rising political force in Denver at the time. The real reason, however, had to do with the president's optimistic goals and athletic trash talk. 
The very Reverend Robert M. Kelly, S.J., was very much the proverbial young man in a hurry when he arrived at the College of the Sacred Heart in Denver in late summer 1920. He was born the same year as the college itself, which had relocated and renamed itself twice since its formation in 1877 in New Mexico. The campus on the outskirts of Denver had one substantial building, Main Hall, surrounded by acres of bare dirt due to a depleted spring and a ledger that bled red chronically. A speech Kelly made two years later was titled, Idealism and the College President. The text has been lost, but it certainly reflected his audacious agenda. One of his first acts? Changing the college's name. It was all precipitated when Sacred Heart began to compete in intercollegiate sports in the 1910s. The Jesuit fathers became so alarmed by opponents' fans yelling things like, Kill Sacred Heart! They placed in the college catalogs warnings not to use the college name in conjunction with athletic events without express permission. They also lamented that the college's initials, SHC, inspired students to refer to it as the Shack. Enter the new president with the ambitious goal of raising $1 million. He saw a revived alumni association and robust athletics as keys to generating enthusiasm, and restrictions on uttering the college's name stood in his way. So, five months into his presidency, he convinced the board to change the name and asked faculty for suggestions. The leading candidates were Newman and Regis, but when it was reported the Jesuit provincial in St. Louis preferred Regis, the board quickly agreed, making the new name effective July 1st, 1921. The reasons for the change are evident, the school newspaper reported on page two that May. Our old name was too sacred for the sport yells and athletic columns in the newspaper. The very reluctance with which the students abandoned the title Sacred Heart College is our very best assurance that the same genuine loyalty and college spirit will be ours again and remain ever unchanged, the students editorialized. The name did not have the intended firepower. Kelly's goal, seeking the equivalent of $15.5 million in today's dollars, was to build new facilities and enroll 1,000 students by 1930. He envisioned a gymnasium, chapel, power and light plant, infirmary, science hall, more residence halls, and athletic fields for the high school and college. The effort fell short at $250,000, but resulted in Carroll Hall, the Northeast addition to Main Hall, briefly called Gonzaga Hall, and a football stadium. Kelly also acquired 39 acres east to Federal Boulevard, nearly doubling the size of campus while leaving the college deep in debt. While not the goal, the name change did not deter the KKK from attempting to burn a cross on campus a few years later. When Kelly arrived in 1920, Colorado's governor had attended a reception to welcome him. But four years later, the state elected Governor Clarence Morley, a Klansman so vehemently anti-Catholic that, with prohibition already in place, he tried to outlaw sacramental wine. In 1926, Kelly left Regis to become president of Loyola Chicago. He returned for a second stint as president in 1935 and once again confronted meager finances. Among his first acts then was to restore intercollegiate football suspended since the beginning of the Great Depression. 
A vision of health. Faith, hard work, and Regis support bring caring and wellness to a Denver community. Story written and read by Karen Ajay. A few years after graduating from Regis University, as he was settling into a career, the Payot Community Health Center Chief Executive Jim Garcia went searching for a church that would put him to work serving the community. He found that within the tan brick walls of Our Lady of Guadalupe Church in Northwest Denver. He also found something he hadn't realized he was looking for, a calling. That discovery is the reason that, for more than two decades, low-income, uninsured Denver residents have had a clinic they can count on for dependable, accessible, affordable, and culturally sensitive health care. Clinica Tepeyac, now called Tepeyac Community Health Center, is an idea conceived by a concerned Catholic congregation, brought to life by Jim Garcia's caring, smarts, and tenacity, and nurtured by a long and productive partnership with Regis University. That partnership has shepherded the clinic from its beginning as an idea discussed in a parish council meeting to the first patient seen in a converted 800-square-foot house in 1995 and then to its current location in a struggling neighborhood a few blocks north of where Interstates 70 and 25 converge. Now, Tepeyac is planning an ambitious expansion in services and square feet and in mission. In addition to treating and preventing illness, clinic leaders now envision a holistic approach that fosters wellness through secure housing and fresh food. And the clinic's Regis connection is once again playing a role in making that happen. When 17-year-old Jim Garcia won a basketball scholarship to Regis, he became the first of the 11 kids in his family to leave his home state of New Mexico to attend college. Off the court, he was an English major who hadn't settled on a career direction, but his time at Regis helped make it clear what he didn't want to do. Through his involvement in campus ministry, Garcia spent weekends volunteering at St. Anthony Hospital, a trauma center then located just north of Colfax Avenue in West Denver. It was, Garcia recalled, an eye-opening experience. I realized I was not suited for the medical profession, but it did give me an orientation toward health care, he said. After graduation, Garcia taught English in an underserved middle school, then counseled troubled youth before going to work for former Colorado Senator Tim Wirth. When he found his way to Denver's Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, its location at 36th Avenue and Calamath Street was then a neighborhood of immigrants and working class, mostly Latinx residents, living in small, aging homes. When Garcia joined the historic congregation, he planned to participate in some community service, but a persistent nun had other ideas. She pestered Garcia to run for parish council and kept after him until he agreed. He eventually ran and, to his surprise, he won. At Garcia's first council meeting, the parish priest laid out the congregation's priorities for serving the community, and there was no question about what would top the list, improving access to health care. He said, we have people coming by asking for help with that almost every day, Garcia recalled. As the discussion turned to ways to improve community health, the priest mentioned that the church owned a tiny, run-down house across the street. Turning that little house into a clinic was an improbable, almost impossible notion for a small congregation with few resources. But Garcia took on the project. First, the congregation had to prove on paper what everyone in the neighborhood knew, that a clinic was needed. That's when Garcia's Regis connection started paying off. As a student, Garcia had known the Reverend Vincent O'Flaherty, who was the Regis rector. But O'Flaherty had recently added another entry to his long resume. He was first director of the Romero House, the university's community of undergraduate students who dedicate an academic year to a simple, spiritual life of service. 
documenting the neighborhood's need for health care became one of Romero House's first projects. At the time, Lori Pramack was a Regis senior and a member of the first class of Romero House students. That inaugural class's assignment was to survey the residents around Our Lady of Guadalupe, Pramack said. We had a list of questions, and we went door to door asking what people's health care needs were. We met so many people and learned about their lives, she recalled. The surveys uncovered social differences as well as medical needs. Many of the residents had heart disease, high blood pressure, and diabetes, and most could not get treatment for those conditions, nor did they have any place to turn to for help with domestic abuse, substance abuse, or mental health issues. The experience was about serving others, but Pramuk benefited too. Throughout her studies at Regis, she struggled to reconcile her science-loving side, which had guided her toward a biology major, with the part of her that loved the humanities and had led her to a second major, English, with an eye toward becoming an English professor. Over those weeks, talking with residents of Northwest Denver, Pramuk discovered that it was possible to marry her two interests. She said, I thought, wow, there's a whole different side of medicine that brings in the humanities degree side. That whole experience changed my life. It also set her on a course to become a pediatrician and to address the social and cultural needs of her patients. For Garcia, the data compiled from those surveys confirmed what we already knew. The need for health care among the community was great. Getting the means to meet that need proved difficult, Garcia recalls. Initially, I heard a lot of, that's a nice idea, Jim, but it ain't going to happen, he said. Garcia's search for a hospital partner that would work with clinic doctors and, when necessary, treat its sickest patients initially turned up a lot of good wishes, but little else. Garcia said, I got a lot of pats on the back and good luck. By the time he explained the clinic concept to Sister Mariana Bowder, chief executive of Denver's St. Joseph Hospital, Garcia was fairly discouraged. But, he recalled, she looked at me and said, whatever you need, we'll help you with. And that began a partnership that continues today. Then, another Regis alumnus stepped in to help. Don Gallegos, longtime King Super's chief executive, provided $10,000 to refurbish the parish's house on Calamath. With that financial head start, members of the Our Lady of Guadalupe congregation provided much of the manual labor, swinging hammers and running saws on weekends. It took a year, but they transformed the house into a two-room clinic. After that, choosing a name for the clinic was easy. According to Catholic tradition, in December 1531, the Virgin Mary appeared to a peasant named Juan Diego on a hill outside Mexico City and instructed him to build a church there. The name of that hill was Tepeyac. Now, Mexico City's Basilica de Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, Our Lady of Guadalupe, is the most frequently visited Catholic shrine in the world, and Our Lady of Guadalupe is a beloved figure, particularly among Latinx Catholics and Latinx culture. By April 1995, the dilapidated old house had been transformed into a clinic and opened its doors with Garcia at the helm to uninsured and medically underserved patients. That year, some 14% of Colorado's residents under age 65 lacked health insurance, according to an Urban Institute study. It's no surprise that within five years, the clinic had outgrown its renovated bungalow. Today, the clinic, which is no longer connected to Our Lady of Guadalupe, sits within Globeville and Illyria, Swansea, neighborhoods that gentrification forgot. Once home to immigrants from Eastern Europe who worked in nearby mining and smelting companies, the neighborhoods remain the nation's most polluted zip code. While the 2009 Affordable Care Act has expanded access to health care for many who had lacked insurance, Denver is still home to an estimated 90,000 low-income people who aren't consistently seen by a health care provider. 
By the clinic's own estimates, nearly 80% of its patients lack insurance of any type, and more than 90% are classified as low income. For Gina Mian, the trouble getting health care started when she left her job in 2011. But her connections and work as an activist meant she knew where to go. I knew about Clinica from my work sharing resources with the community, she said, speaking through an interpreter. She's been a Clinica patient ever since, and with her history of activism, she once worked for the Colorado Immigrant Rights Coalition, and she now hosts a radio show called Mujeres de Calor. Mian wasn't shy about pointing out ways for improvement. In February, Mian landed a spot on the Tepeyac board with the goal of helping the clinic retain medical staff, most of whom could earn higher salaries elsewhere and to improve the services for the LGBTQ community. Mian is deeply proud to be on the board. If Tepeyac didn't exist to care for people who lack insurance or money, more people would die, she said. Mian's fellow board members include Regis faculty. Mian's fellow board members include Samit Shah, dean of Regis's School of Pharmacy, and Linda Osterland, dean of the Ruckert-Hartman College for Health Professions. When Shah learned about Tepeyac shortly after coming to Regis, he said, I was awestruck by the incredible work they're doing. It aligns perfectly with our mission at Regis. Part of that mission now is to expand Tepeyac's work beyond treating and preventing illness to provide important components of good health, like stable, affordable housing and fresh food in the Globeville and Elyria Swansea neighborhoods, which are food deserts. The expansion plans include adding a pharmacy to Tepeyac's services. Shaw is collaborating with clinic leaders so that when the pharmacy opens, Regis faculty members will take their turns behind the counter. The clinic is on its way to raising the $13 million needed to open new services in a new location, with a pharmacy, housing, a grocery store, imaging, more patient examination rooms, and dental suites. The new clinic would be a major step up from a tiny house converted into an 800-square-foot clinic. The clinic also has a new name, Tepeyac Community Health Center. The change reflects how Tepeyac isn't just a place that treats illness, but has grown to offer a full spectrum of services, including medical, dental, behavioral health, and pharmacy, Garcia said. Altogether, it's far more than Jim Garcia could have imagined when that nun goaded him into taking a spot on a parish council. He said, it's been a humbling experience. In the beginning, I never had any idea that we would even get the project off the ground. A look at Tepeyac by the numbers. They receive 18,000 patient visits each year. 91.5% of patients are low income and 75% of patients live below the poverty line. But there's a vision for more comprehensive care. Tepeyac Community Health Center leaders hope to raise half of the $13 million needed for a new facility at 48th Avenue and Race Street. The new site, which Tepeyac plans to open in early 2023, would almost quadruple the facility's size to 24,500 square feet and increase the annual patient visit capacity to 37,000. The new facility would include retail space offering groceries and fresh food, comprehensive imaging services, and pharmacy services all under one roof. Regis's Tree Risper helps diverse species take root. Story by Meredith Sell, Read by Marcus Canodal. Tucked away on the eastern side of the Northwest Denver campus and fenced off from the rest of the world, more than 100 young trees are protected and cared for in a nursery until they are big and strong enough to become part of Regis's celebrated Arboretum. Much of that care is provided by the woman who paid for many of them out of her own pocket, 
who has given countless hours to planting, growing, and tending Regis trees, and for whom that secluded nursery is now named Sonia John. Since 2015, John, a retired artist and local tree lover, has lent her self-described tree energies to the Regis University Arboretum. But her interest in trees took root long before she set foot on campus and saw hundreds of species thriving despite Denver's dry, tree-hostile climate. When I was a kid, I'd climb trees. But doesn't everybody climb trees, John said. She remembers growing up around maple trees and their winged seeds, which spun like helicopter blades on their way to the ground. And she remembers collecting foliage in high school for a biology class assignment. Using a key that asked about distinguishing features, was the leaf veined, symmetrical? Were its edges smooth or jagged? She learned to identify a tree based on its leaves. That skill stuck with her. Decades later, on a walk in Denver, a friend pointed out a tree. John could tell it was an oak, but her friend wanted to know what kind of an oak. John didn't know. At home, she flipped through a book about North American trees, skimming its pages of oak listings to identify the mystery oak, to no avail. Not until John took to the internet could she identify the tree. It was an English oak, not a species native to North America. Oh, so oaks from other parts of the world are grown here, she remembers thinking. It seems silly to her now, but in the moment, the realization was like a match taking light and it lit her curiosity like dry tinder. I've got to find out more. That was in 2004. Since then, John has become both tree expert and tree nurturer. She turned her patio and backyard into her own mini greenhouse and nursery. She volunteered with the University of Denver's Campus Arboretum. She started an annual tree diversity conference in partnership with Denver Botanic Gardens. She's traveled the globe to visit arboretums in New Zealand, France, Spain, and England. She's developed relationships in the world of tree lovers and enthusiasts. And for more than five years, she has supported the Regis University Arboretum as its volunteer curator. Officially designated since 2000, the Regis University Arboretum encompasses the entire Denver campus tree collection, from the state champion Weeping American Elm near O'Connell Hall that turns a stunning yellow in the fall, to the sawtooth oak that is one of a handful of trees lining Betcher Commons. The Arboretum started informally in the mid-1980s with the efforts of Jack Callahan, a Jesuit priest who took it upon himself to start planting trees on campus. When Patrick Schlanger, director of physical plant operations, started as a landscaper at Regis in 1991, the Arboretum was talked about a lot, but there wasn't any real energy behind making it official, not until nine years later when a donation from alumnus Martin Hart provided resources to identify and label the trees, create maps of their locations, and build a kiosk for the maps. The kiosk is located near the sidewalk directly across from parking lot 4. Currently, a small endowment provides enough funding to purchase a few trees each year, keep them labeled, and update the Arboretum maps. Before John started volunteering at Regis, Schlanger's team added five to ten new species of trees to the Arboretum each year. They set up a small nursery so trees could build some girth before being exposed to errant frisbees and other hazards on the broader campus. When Sonia became the curator, the planting accelerated, Schlanger said. Now they add 15 to 25 species annually, 
some purchased by John and replanted from her backyard nursery. Given her knowledge and her networking through the tree world, we are more easily able to get new varieties. According to John, the Regis University Arboretum currently contains 328 different species. They line the outer edge of campus. They stand along the outfield of the baseball field. They provide depth to Our Lady of Loreto Grotto and a canopy over benches and boulders across campus. In the nursery, where John keeps an eye on the irrigation system and clears out weeds and bug infestations, more trees wait to join the Arboretum. When a tree is ready for its permanent home, John and Schlanger drive a cart around campus and size up potential planting spots. Is there too much sun? Not enough. Too much wind for this type of tree. It's so hard to grow trees here, John said on a Wednesday in early March when the high temperature was 61 degrees. A week and a half before a winter storm and three feet of snow effectively shut down northeastern Colorado. For years, it was kind of the received wisdom that you can only grow this very restricted list of trees here because of lack of water, the intense sunshine, the very low temperatures, and the drastic swings in temperature in the fall and spring. It's just really hard on trees, and that is true. But they underestimated what could be grown here. With John's help, the Regis University Arboretum is resetting expectations. Faculty research. A Regis professor and a tiny particle upend the laws of physics. Story written and read by Sarah Knuth. When scientists made international headlines and earned a Nobel Prize after discovering the Higgs boson, or God particle, in 2013, they completed a piece of the puzzle that physicists have been putting together since the 1970s. Their transformative work was confirmed by what's known as the Standard Model, a theory that explains physics well, almost too well. That's why, as Regis Associate Professor and Physics and Astronomy Department Chairman Frederick Gray puts it, everyone is trying to break it. Everyone would love to have the discovery of the thing that goes beyond the standard model. Now, Gray and colleagues at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, or Fermilab, have, if not broken the standard model, certainly bent it. At Fermilab, a physics and accelerator lab operated through the U.S. Department of Energy outside Chicago, Gray and more than 200 collaborators from seven countries have closed in on the results of an experiment that mark a transformative scientific discovery. How close does it come to breaking the standard model? Gray said, our little experiment, let's say, it almost does it. The first results of the experiment, known as muon G-2, show strong evidence that the standard model is incomplete and new, undiscovered forms of matter or forces might exist outside it. As they started the experiment, scientists had a good reason to believe this matter could exist. In an earlier experiment at Brookhaven National Laboratory, the subject of Gray's 1998 dissertation, he said, we measured a value that was just a little different than what the standard model would predict. The experiment works like this. Focusing magnets help transport a beam of particles called muons into a large storage ring. Once the particles are there, they travel inside a vacuum chamber via a magnetic field that causes the particles to wobble on their axes like spinning tops. Because they're moving so quickly, time slows down for the muons, making the short-lived particles exist long enough for scientists to measure how fast they're spinning. If a new, undiscovered particle is present, the muons will behave differently than what the standard model would predict. 
That's exactly what happened at Fermilab, but scientists don't yet know what types of matter or forces are causing the discrepancy. As Fermilab scientists continue to release and analyze data, their research could begin to transform our understanding of physics, from the tiny particles scientists are researching at Fermilab to unexplained dark matter in the expanses of the universe. Gray said, it's unlikely that we would have to throw out the book on particle physics, but it's more like we would have to add another chapter or maybe even a whole volume of the book. During the experiment, which started in 2013, Gray has dedicated weekends and school breaks to working at Fermilab. Regis students began to make an impact on the experiment after Gray secured funding from the National Science Foundation to bring students to Chicago. Next year, he plans to take a sabbatical to work on the experiment full-time. Gray says, over the years, it became clear that this is one of those pieces of science in our field that held the potential to be transformative. If it's really right, this may be the key to knowing what physics is out there. Our final piece this episode is our Ask Reggie column. What truly gets your tail in a knot? As written by our university mascot, Reggie, and voiced by one of our friendly campus squirrels. I always respect and appreciate your enduring sense of optimism. However, I want to know what truly gets your tail in a knot. Funny you should ask, because lately... I've noticed my mind venturing into unfamiliar dens. I keep hearing this pop up again and again like a field of over-caffeinated prairie dogs. It's the word hate. I find it difficult to even type it, and not because my fingers are the size of jumbo kielbasas. Way too much of this going around. Never helps anything or anyone, yet so many folks say it, text it, and even embrace it nowadays. I'm no Sigmund Fox, but I'd say that's irrational behavior. It even hurts and affects the hater more than the hatee. It infects your very soul. I guess we could chalk some of this up to the pandemic, but honestly, we need to nip this trend in the bud. Look, I'm a fox, a professor of nothing. I live the simplest of lives, totally in tune with nature. I don't overthink things. When I see morning light reflecting off a rippling stream, I get fox pimples. I see beauty, life, peace, and perfection where someone else may see just a bunch of water. Many non-fox folk miss out on what could be a spiritually uplifting experience because they don't let themselves open up. To me, it's about choosing how you wish to live. And it's a give and take. What you put out into the universe, you get back. Ooh, quick side story. When I was just a kid, all my fine furried friends smiled, waved, and spoke kindly to me every day. But as I grew up, There weren't as many smiles or waves anymore, and I thought the world had changed overnight. Then I realized it wasn't the world's fault at all. It was mine. I had been taking and taking, and the solution hit me like a ton of multicolored sprinkles. It was my turn to give. Well, stick my head in an anthill and smear my ears with jelly. So I began initiating kindness... And that made the difference. I became the change I wanted to feel. You want less hate? Then love more. 
Ignore the hate-filled, disparaging chatter and those soul-draining thoughts like, I gotta be this, or I gotta have that, and rise above this silly, triggered culture. Relax. Just be. That's really the only thing you need to do. Well, that and taxes, apparently, but that's really not my area. Be the donut in someone else's morning. You do you, and you'll always land on all four feet. So, what gets my tail in a knot? Hating, fearing, and when I get tree sap in my fur. And maybe the Broncos last season. But other than that, I'm okay. Don't let hate into your heart. Be the fox others want to hang out with. Not a little Debbie's donut downer. Don't let anyone else tell you you're anything less than amazing. Stay wonderful. Stay wonder-filled. Stay custard-cream-filled. Nom nom. Reginator, out! Thank you for listening to The Quad Pod. You can view the full issue of this magazine online at regis.edu slash magazine. See images from the stories you've just heard, indulge in a bit of Regis nostalgia, read more about the inspiring accomplishments of students, faculty, and alumni, as well as learn what's new and exciting on campus. Subscribe or follow the Quad Pod wherever you get your podcast if you'd like future audio versions of the Regis University magazine to show up in your feed. Stay cool, never change, and have a great summer.